Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Here's a story today from the National Post today. Nearly 90%, 90% of federal public sector executives, as well as thousands of other federal bureaucrats, went home with $190 million in bonuses last year. That's an 11% jump from the previous year. 90% of government, federal government executives did their job so well that they deserved a bonus beyond their already generous salary and benefits and pension and all the rest. I want to bring in Franco Terrazano. He's the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us now. Franco, how are you today? Well, hey, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, can you tell me any other company or business in Canada where you would have 90% of the people working for you doing such an exceptional job that they deserve a bonus? Well, you know what? But here's the thing. They're not doing a good job. Taxpayers are paying more for poor performance. And it's well, but we're told they're numbers. doing good enough. We're told they're well, doing well enough that they deserve a bonus. Well, I think we have to disagree there because the government's own numbers show that in 2020, uh, they didn't even hit 50% of their performance targets. In 2019, they also didn't hit 50% of their performance targets. So you know what? If you work for a business in the private sector and you don't meet 50% of your performance targets, you don't get uh, shown a big fat bonus check. You get shown the door. Okay, so I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but as I'm reading this story, I think we are talking, you and I are talking, uh, unlike the government, in different words here, because the things that earn you a bonus, if you're a federal government executive, are not necessarily performance targets. It's executive bonuses can be based on whether a manager hits diversity targets in hiring or if they ensure proper access to mental health services for their staff. Franco, if that's the barometer, if that's the bar that we have set yeah. for excellence among our federal executives, I, I, I'm sorry, every one of us should be applying for a job there immediately. That is that is the lowest bar I could possibly imagine. That's exactly right. I mean, what you just said, like that's it's fine to have those as your targets, um, but that's the bare minimum. Like you should be looking uh, for those types of hires and, and all that, which you just mentioned. That's the bare minimum. That's not going above and beyond, right? Uh, going above and beyond is hitting more than half of your department's performance objectives, which they're not doing. But let's even just set aside the fact that we're paying bonuses to executive bureaucrats when their departments are failing. Let's just set that aside for a quick second because there's two other things. Remember, these are bonuses being paid out during the pandemic. $190 million last year in 2021. $171 million in bonuses in 2020. That's $360 million in bonuses for these department bureaucrats, many of them executives, while their neighbors, who are the ones who are paying their salaries in the private sector, lost their job, took pay cuts, maybe even lost their small business. So that's completely unfair. But the second point I want to talk about as well is uh, we already have many highly paid bureaucrats in the federal department. They're not they starving. Yeah, they, and they didn't take pay cuts during the pandemic. In fact, the federal government doesn't have any records of its employees ever taking a pay cut. The opposite is true. We got our hands on access to information requests that showed that more than 300,000 federal government employees received at least one raise during the pandemic. And on top of that, there's over 114,000 federal government employees that are already receiving a six-figure salary. 
I mean, I look, I, there's so many things here. Let me go back. I want to get back to oh, that number. I mean, what did you say? 300 and something. The fact that we even have 300,000 federal government employees in a country of 38 million seems a lot when you also have provincial government employees and municipal employees, but nonetheless. But it, it, in the private sector, hitting diversity targets and hiring or ensuring pro- proper access to mental health services exist. That is just considered what you do as part yeah. of your daily responsibilities. That's not a, that's not a, Hey, way to go, Bob. What a great job you did by hiring the people we said you should hire or making sure your staff is, is got access to these things. That's again, that is, that is setting such an incredibly low bar that it does make me wonder what other bars have we set for federal or provincial employees that if this is what earns an executive a bonus, what are the day-to-day, what's the day-to-day bureaucrat expected to do to keep their job? It can't be very substantial as far as the bar that we're setting. Well, you bring up such a good point because that's the bare minimum of what they're supposed to be doing, right? And, And you shouldn't be getting a bonus for the bare minimum. You shouldn't be getting a bonus for doing a poor job, right? They're not even meeting half of their own performance objectives. I mean, at what point does something stop being be called a bonus and it's just your salary or just a slush fund that you hand out every single year to essentially everyone? But you know what's even, even worse than this? This number that we're talking about, the $360 million in bonuses over the two years of the pandemic, 2020 and 2021, that's just for department bureaucrats. <laughs> but that's not the entirety of the federal government. No, 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 because the federal government has its, uh, you know, it's like an octopus with, with its tentacles everywhere because there's a ton of crown corporations that we have to talk about as well. And many crown corporations are failing, and they're also handing out bonuses. The Bank of Canada, $45 million in bonuses and pay raises to the central bankers when they even admit that they failed their own inflation targets. Well, no, duh. The Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation handed out nearly $60 million dollars in bonuses and pay raises during the pandemic when they completely failed their number one objective of housing affordability. The CBC, another crown corporation, $51 million in bonuses and pay raises. Our members of parliament, three pay raises during the pandemic. So who's not getting a pay raise or a bonus in Ottawa? These Me, you, uh, <laughs> most of the people listening. When you describe it, though, you know, I have this flashback to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation when Clark Griswold is furious because he didn't get his bonus. He goes, some people rely on this as part of their pay. And I'm thinking, that's it, that sounds like what's happening here. A bonus is not supposed to be something that you automatically get no matter what happens. It's supposed to be, to me, for something exceptional, for something above and beyond, for something you've done that shows that you have gone way beyond what the expected performance is. That's not what's happening here. We're building this in as part of pay by the looks of it. That's exactly how it seems. Like I said, at one at what point does something just stop being called a bonus and it's just part of the person's exactly. salary? And and you know what? But, so the bank and they admit that they haven't hit their targets either because the Bank of Canada, their deputy governor, said that they did not hit their inflation targets and that they should be held accountable. Well, isn't that just a funny way to hold your organization accountable to then turn around and hand out $45 million in bonuses and pay raises during a pandemic? But, you know, like, it's not just the money. It is the money, but it's not just the money. Because what kind of incentive are we giving I, I our agree. government employees? 
I agree. If you look, I don't have any objection, by the way, for people listening, I don't have any objection to people getting a bonus. I don't. I, I think that certain people should get bonuses. I think bonuses are in some ways, not exactly, in some ways like a tip. And I know that we've changed the idea of tipping because now everybody gets a tip if you do something. I still think it's for good performance, but I don't have a problem with someone getting a bonus. I just think you should have to do something for it. I think there's something you should have to earn it somehow, as opposed to just being told. Uh, and, and Franco, we got to run. But why are they? Why would we not then, if we are giving this out essentially as part of a pay package? Because boy, if you're one of the ten percent of government executives who didn't get this, you must be the biggest loser of all time. <laughs> But it, why not just include it in their pay package? Is it because that would make it look like we're paying even more, and this is an easier way to hide it? You know what? That is such that is such a good point, and that and I you know what I, I I bet that's a part of it because this way of paying government employees this way, like if everyone's just going to get a bonus, it's essentially a salary or it's essentially a slush fund. Uh, but then you know that that's that's hidden. We don't really get to see that, and not so much just with the executives, but but even more so with the with the non-executives, the the normal employees, uh, and because it's going to be harder to see than what they're actually making. And I just mm. want to bring up one more thing because it's not sure, just yeah. bonuses and pay raises. We also paid out 1.6 billion dollars in overtime since 2019 to federal government employees. So there's even that on top of it. You got pay raises, bonuses, overtime thousands of new federal hires every single year. And you know what? It seems to me like we're not exactly getting great performance here in Ottawa. It doesn't seem like things are going a whole lot faster. Let's put it that way, especially if you're waiting for a passport, for example. Uh, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for this. Thanks for having me on. And yes, if you are one of the 10% of federal government executives, only 10% who didn't get a raise, I think you you might want to look in the mirror and go, I, I must truly suck at my job. I mean, I must be so bad at my job because when 90% are getting it, it's it sounds like it's a pretty easy thing to get. I mean, you must, you must really be not doing a very good job at what you're doing if you can't get it. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Eric Cam, uh, director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program, emailed me just before we came on saying he was listening to the last segment. Ask me about this public sector pay stuff. All right, Eric Cam, what about it? Scott, I'm actually glad that you asked me. Uh, I've been saying this on your show and on other platforms for a while now. This is what happens. It's not about meritorious service. That's fine. If you want to give people bonuses, you can give them bonuses, but that's a really micro level of looking at it. I've been preaching for a long time that this is a much larger problem in that the sector that is growing the fastest in our post-pandemic economy is the public sector. And this is a really dangerous road to go down. When you have the public sector funded completely by tax dollars, as the fastest growing industry, fastest growing sector in a country, nothing good can come of this. So I didn't want to hijack your other topic, but I was really excited that you were talking about it and kind of highlighting for the first time I've heard in a while, somebody saying the public sector growth is out of control. So I appreciate that. All right. I appreciate you jumping in on that one. So let's get to this other thing. And, you know, maybe in the next few days, we'll get back to that other and have you back on. Um, Forbes magazine put out a, a long, they put out an article, but a long Twitter thread about a situation that is now facing Europe 
uh, they're saying that this could be the worst energy crisis in that continent since the 1970s, that because so many countries over there gambled on Russian oil, which obviously has not paid off with the war, uh, the situation, situation is so dire that they're going to have to be rationing. We may see manufacturing plants shut down. We may see greater recession there than other places. And all of that stuff is inevitably, is it not? I mean, it's bad for the people there and we are um, understanding and we're, we're sympathetic to the people there, but it also could have a spillover effect on us because the world economy is all tied together. Well, that's right. I mean, I, there's a famous quote that the world is a closed economy. So it's impossible to look at an upset like this in a part of the world and think it's not going to bleed in. Now, the, if there is good news, and I use that term in very small letters, we don't have a great exposure to Russia and Russian oil. We do buy oil from Russia, but we don't buy a majority of our oil. I am far more concerned with smaller European countries, let's say Bulgaria, where 7 million Bulgarians right now cannot afford to heat their home. And that number may be on the low side. So you're right, and, and, and it's exactly the way that you said it. People gambled on Russian oil, and the price of Russian oil has gone through the roof. Part of that has been self-inflicted with the what's going on in the Ukraine, but also Russia is keeping the price of their oil artificially high, and they're using it as a bargaining chip. And the problem is, other than the obvious problems, is that it's a bargaining chip against human life. I mean, people need to heat their homes in winter, especially in that part of the world. So, so many countries have such a great exposure to Russian energy that they have put themselves in a terribly perilous position. And then, yes, there is a world market for oil, a world market for natural gas. And because of what's going on in Russia, the only way that prices are going to move in all other countries, Scott, is up. Well, and so, yes, you're absolutely correct, obviously, that we don't buy a ton of Russian oil, but what we do buy is a lot of product from Europe. And if the manufacturing plants can't stay open this winter because they can't run because the costs are too high or they can't get the oil or gas to heat them and run them, that we do buy that stuff. That will come and affect us in our economy if those things that are made there can't arrive here. Exactly. As journalism school would tell you, you localize the lead. And that's exactly what's going to go on is if you're shutting down factories, if you're shutting down manufacturing because you can't afford either to have the natural resource as an input or you just can't heat your factory and you can't ask people to come to work, that's going to take these already existing supply chain problems and make them worse. And that really, you know, there's so much of a human cost to this because eventually that's going to make its way into our labor market and hurt our ability to produce goods. The prices of those are only going to go up. And what happens when it does reach employment? What happens when our labor markets are adversely affected because we buy so many goods from Europe? You know, this has been a high-stakes game from the beginning. And, and I don't, and nobody understands completely the ramifications of a country as big as Russia playing the games that they're playing. But yes, you can rest assured in world markets that it's only going to cause supply chain shortages only going to cause prices to go up from such a number of goods that right now, frankly, we, don't, we can't even figure or count yet. What is our level of um, bringing stuff in from Europe as opposed to, like, we know that when, when COVID hit and the supply chain issues shut down, we know that a lot of stuff from, say, Asia got bottled up and we couldn't get it through LA or Vancouver, and that was a big issue. How much do we import from Europe? Um. Well, we don't import from Europe as much as we do from the United States and Asia. 
Uh, but we have a, a double whammy right now, which is you're going to see the amount of goods that we can import falling because of the issues that we're discussing. And then you're also going to see the amount of goods falling because of boycotts, whether formal or informal. Our government is trying to minimize how much they bring in from Europe vis-a-vis Russia. So again, I'm getting a little bit repetitive, but prices are going up as the amount of goods are going down. And so we're kind of we're kind of spiraling back into the supply chain issues that we had six months ago. And I guess I'm just asking listeners to remember that you've got kind of both forces at once. You have a government that for a long time was trying to solve supply chain issues by opening up lines of trade with as many partners as they could, but because they want to put pressure on Russia, they don't want to open up the European lines quicker than they have to. And that's only going to force our prices upwards. Okay, what about the flip side, though? If Europe is having a tough time making things like steel, which is one of the companies, one of the products that we're hearing about that could really be affected, could this be, you know, we, we, we hate, I mean, it's hard to ask this question because it sounds like we're taking advantage of a desperate situation, but could some place like Hamilton that makes steel or other places that produce products that they need, could this be a boom time for companies in Canada? I think it could be a boom time for companies in Canada, but... We say ceteris is paribus, right? Are all things remaining equal? Are we operating in a time right now of political openness where governments like Canada, provinces like Ontario, we know that we can produce the goods in God bless places like Hamilton, Ontario, but is the government motivated to sell those goods to the people of Europe right now? I mean, the government does have a marked ability to say, we don't want so many things trickling out into these countries. We know there's a humanitarian effort, but we also want to put pressure on Russia. We don't want things to be too easy. So I think the answer to your question is kind of twofold. We could, and frankly, I think we should, because I think that business opportunities, uh, they should not be left on the table. And I think that there's just a humanitarian outcry. But I'm curious to see what our government does, Scott, with the exports that we potentially have, because everybody knows that they do have a bit of a bias of trying to keep Russia at bay. And so I don't think they're going to keep the trade flows as open as, frankly, they could or they should. Eric Cam, Associate Professor and Director of the International Economics and Finance Undergraduate Program at Toronto Metropolitan University. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. It's an honor, Scott. Stay healthy. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Okay, so we've been hearing now for months. Well, yeah, months probably, and now specifically weeks. About Paul Henderson, about the goal, about the Summit Series, about, you know, all that kind of stuff. You've been hearing about all those things that um, that celebrate the 50th anniversary of what was the greatest goal ever scored. September the 28th, 1972. So the, the, the issue is not whether it's the greatest goal ever scored, although we can certainly have that discussion. Some would say yes, some would say no. But is it a foregone conclusion that Paul Henderson's goal is also the greatest sports moment in Canadian history? There are many who would say absolutely yes for a variety of reasons, and it's really difficult, uh, as many would say, unless you were there and understood the context of the day, the the political climate, the the world events, all that kind of stuff. It's really hard to whittle it down to just a goal, but if you were there, you understand. Okay, fair enough. 
But is Paul Henderson's goal the greatest Canadian sports moment of all time? You know, we should have brought an entire panel together, but I thought, well, you know what? This guy, he, he's, he, he can be his own panel. He, he can bring in the thoughts of the people. Uh, his name is Steve Foxcroft, a sports commentator, sports official, NFL official, all those kind of things. Steve joins us now. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you? I am doing better than both your Buffalo Bills and the Miami Dolphins punt snapper, whose backside has got to be 12 shades of purple today. He had a tough one there, didn't he? That was a good one. That Hey, it kept the game going, though, right, for the for us Bills fans. So, that Well, was- I'll say this. Um, anyone who has ever been near a professional kicker, a professional, whether it's CFL or NFL, and you've heard the volume of how hard those guys kick a ball, understands that, and if you don't know what we're talking about, the snapper, the, the Dolphins on Sunday were pushed back deep into their own end. They were punting. They didn't have the usual distance for the snap, so the punter didn't have space. And he punted the ball at full velocity right into his center's, well, crack, for, for lack of a better term. And, and I got to believe, if you've ever heard the volume and the velocity of one of those balls leaving a punter's foot, Steve, that had to hurt like unbelievably amount. That it, He was just happy it was the end of the game at that point, the center, because he wasn't coming back, that's for sure. I oh, bet you that he wasn't sitting. Report. Yeah, he wasn't even sitting in the dressing room. I bet he was <laughs> kneeling or lying down because... That that was that. Uh, I, I'm not kidding. Like that would have hurt like the Dickens to have that happen. That is not something that we'd want to be a part of, right there. That, you know, the long snap. He's a specialist too, right? So that's where you just don't have a, those guys li- lined up to do. And now it's going to be less and less after all the people see that play. They're going to say, "No, I don't want to be the long snapper. Forget it." I am uh, completely drawing a blank here. Uh, I'll think of it in just a second. Uh, it used to be a long snapper for the Ticats with a French-Canadian name from Burlington. Um, I'll give it to you, Matt Robichaux. Matt Robichaux, thank you. Matt yeah. Robichaux, thank you, yes. Yeah. Matt Robichaux, once upon a time, and I still say this, uh, CFL, NFL, doesn't matter, was one of the best long snappers, period, ever, anywhere. He was amazing. Yeah, He was I amazing. Yeah. He was dynamite. Good family from Burlington. I think he went to Bishops and then come back and starred for our, our Tiger Cats. And he, yeah, he was one of, I'm kind of glad you brought him up because uh, that's a name from the past and they don't get the recognition they deserve until something like this happens. But Matt Robichaux, one of the best. Matt Robichaux. And I'm I'm telling you, I, I, I absolutely believe, and others told me this too, he could have played in the NFL if he'd been just a little bit bigger. He was undersized, yeah. but his long snapping was amazing. Anyway, one time in a, in a bleak year for the Tiger Cats, and they had a few over the years. Um, things were not going well. And Matt, who had been perfect on basically every snap all year, had one that got away from him, and it led to a missed field goal. And some of the fans got all over him. And so I thought, you know what? This is ridiculous because he's been perfect, basically. So I said to him at a practice the next day, would you mind? I like, I want to see what what it's like. So would you, would you mm-hmm. fire a long snap back to me? Mm-hmm. And so I set up on one knee like the holder yeah. would back where a, a holder would do it. Steve, I got to tell you, that thing came back so fast. If I had not got my hands up exactly right, I would have taken that thing right off the bugle. Yeah, It, it uh, comes back there that. like it is fired out of a gun. It's amazing. Yeah. It's a unique talent. And 
And Matt, he took pride in it and he worked at his craft, right? And that's what made him one of the best where we're talking about him years later. Yeah, but he never I'm got... Glad, I'm glad you survived though, Scott. Well, I barely. My colleague Ken Peters almost didn't. Um, and I'm just, I'm relieved for Matt's sake that he never had a broken bum from a bad punt that went, <laughs> that went right up the chute. So um, anyway, we move along. Tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of the Paul Henderson goal. It is, uh, we've been hearing lots about it for weeks and weeks and weeks now. We've had the 1972 team show up in the House of Commons and show up and there's a CBC series that's going, a four-part series and on and on and on. And Steve, there are those people who say it's a foregone conclusion that Paul Henderson's goal is the greatest Canadian sports moment. I'm not going to get you to say yes or no just yet, but who or what would you put, you can give it to me in order of five to one, or you can randomly do it and then sort it out. What would be your five greatest Canadian sports moments? Okay, I'll try and I'll try and go. Which is impossible, by the way. Which is yeah. impossible. But anyway, yeah, it is impossible. That's well said. And and you got to throw in some honorable mentions. And then I'll throw in this caveat. I'm going to give you ones where I was there. So oh, okay. The two that are obvious to me that I wasn't there for were Kawhi Leonard's four bounces and in. Yes. And Joe Carter touch them all. Okay. They're, they're up there, but I'll give you one. So I wasn't there for them. So mine are going to be ones I was there. And, and I think I still got some good ones. Um, Tony champion, 1989 gray cup. All right. Scores 44 seconds left. It was to me, that's the Canadian, the catch. Right? It was, Dwight it was Clark in the NFL. That was our, the catch nine yards. Yeah, he, for those who don't remember, he was running, he twisted, he leaped backwards, he landed on his back, and he did that with a couple broken ribs that I found out yep. later. So, uh, yeah, Tony Champion, okay, that's a good one. First year of Sky Dome, too, so it was special that it was in Sky Dome. My dad got us tickets. I was in the last row of the 500s. The people on the Gardner Expressway had a better view than <laughs> I did, but, but I was yep. there for it. And then, of course, local guy, Dave Ridgway, with Glenn Suter holding the they he kicks the winning field goal and beats us. So anyway, eighty nine Grey Cup, um, the bat flip, Jose Batista. All right, bat flip, and that's because they win six three, but it was a fifty three minute inning, and then yeah, the seventh he inning hit a homer. He crushed a homer, you know, and the whole thing that happened in the top of the seventh with Russell Martin throwing the ball off Shinsu Chu's bat. And that Odor guy scores who you just grow to hate him. So anyway, that flip, absolutely amazing is one of mine. Um, I have two Montreal Canadian moments from Montreal. Uh, in the forum, Guy Lafleur returning to play against the Habs. Was he with the Nordique or the Rangers then? Uh, Rangers, I believe it was. Okay. I was there. And Saku Kwevu, the night he came back from cancer at the Bell Centre. And got wow. like a 14-minute standing ovation. Those were goosebump moments for me. And I think because it's hockey, it's Canada, it's the Montreal Canadiens, da 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 um, So those are my kind of the best. And then I got two left. Okay. 87 Canada Cup. Yeah, Gretzky to Lemieux. I'm, yep. I'm combining game two and three, though, because they were both in Hamilton. Was Adam both? And Grant Fuhrer stood on his head in game two. He kept, continuously kept it in the 
the Canadians in the series, really, because if they lose, they're out. And then, of course, that set up game three where how many times have I replayed the face-off win? Oh, just unbelievable. Gretzky, Lemieux, unbelievable, right? Like, just unbelievable. So that's my right up there. And then my top one, though, Scott, has to be, and I got other honorable mentions, but it has to be anything Terry Fox. To me, that's the all-time Canadian sports moment was Terry Fox. And, like, you can picture it. You can picture him, you know, running running down Plains Road in Burlington. You can picture him with Daryl Sittler at the uh, Toronto City Hall. You can picture him in the ambulance getting carried out. Like, to me, Terry Fox, all-time sports moment for me. All right. So I, I would I, – Terry Fox was on my top five. For sure. I'll tell you who's not in my top five and okay. that I, I seriously considered and on a different day, I could be talked into it. And by the way, uh, those who have their own thoughts, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Radley, R-A-D-L-E-Y, Radley at 900CHML.com. As I say, I, I could be talked into these, but today they're not. Um, Mike Weir mm-hmm. winning the Masters right there, but he's not in my top five right now. But right. I mean, an unbelievable moment. Uh, Bianca Andreescu winning the U.S. Open. The only reason that she's not there is because, well, first of all, because the top five is so tough, but also Serena Williams was hurting at that time. Yeah. doesn't take anything away because she had to get there. Right. But if I've got to put her in the top five, that little teeny weeny tiny tiny little thing would be the deciding factor for me. Okay. Not in the top five, Donovan Bailey. Although, again, like right there, yeah. right there. Kawhi Leonard didn't make it. I would love to put the Olympic women's soccer team winning gold medal in there, or even the Olympic women's soccer team in that game that they lost, which I still think you could put in the top, you could yeah. consider for the top five in the 2012 Olympics when they really came into their own and played in that game where the refs screwed everything up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have Gretzky to Lemieux in my top five, believe it or not. I don't have the other ones you mentioned. Bautista, I was also at that game. I probably should. Mm-hmm. Here's my top five. Number five, Sidney Crosby scoring the golden goal for two reasons. One, because it was in Canada uh, for a number of reasons. One, because it was in Canada. Two, because it was a generation's moment. And three, because if you go online, you can find there are videos on YouTube of snippets of living rooms and bars and streets and outdoor screens and everything all across Canada, all watching that game. The entire country pretty much had stopped and was staring at that. It's one of the few times, Steve, that in recent memory anyway, that pretty much everybody in Canada was focused on the same thing. You'd think Donovan, I know I want you to go on your list, but the Donovan Bailey moment or the Ben Johnson moment, moment, might have been similar where that Well, hold on, hold on cuz I said Donovan Bailey, I didn't say Ben Johnson yet. So yeah. hold on. Number okay. 4, Sorry. I've got Joe Carter. Yeah. Joe Carter hitting the home run largely for the same reason. That was a everybody was watching that and the I was not in the dome that night. I wish I was. Mm-hmm. Um uh, in my old house when we sold it, there was still a arm hole in the ceiling from where I jumped up and accidentally <laughs> punched a hole through the ceiling quite inadvertently when he hit that home run. Number three, now, you know, I'm, I'm ready to take the abuse on this one. I did not put Donovan Bailey in my top five, but I do have Ben Johnson in my top five. Right. And I know what happened. 
I understand Ben Johnson was cheating. Mm-hmm. I get all of that stuff. But I don't think that the night that Donovan Bailey won can match the feeling, not what happened later, but the right. feeling when Ben Johnson first won that gold medal and beat Carl Lewis. That yeah. was unmatchable. And and 979 too, doing it in 979. The, the record was fine. The record was lovely. But what Donovan Bailey never had that Ben Johnson had was a foil. There was never anyone running against Donovan Bailey that Canadians hated as much as we hated Carl Lewis. We hated Carl Lewis. And the thought of Carl Lewis winning that race, we would have gone into a national period of mourning if he had won that race. Right Now, he ended up winning that race, as it turns out. But in Mm -hmm. that moment... There was there was nothing better than Ben Johnson winning, and and the other thing too, there was no like w- what Donovan Bailey had was Ben Johnson before him, like like you know what I mean. Even though it got it turned out the way it did, we already had a track guy winning it for at least a day, anyways. Where with Ben Johnson, there was nothing before him like that. Yeah, I, I you know I I've always said that Donovan Bailey paid a price. It was totally unfair because. There was never a whiff around Donovan Bailey of steroids, not even a whiff. There was never a suggestion that he was into anything that I ever heard, anything wrong. And yet we all, I think, kept waiting for that positive test or something because we'd been through it before. It was totally unfair to Donovan Bailey. And yet I think for a lot of people, we, we just sort of figured I can't fully invest in this guy because when's it going to come? Never did. Never did. Local guy, QE Park in Oakville. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, by rights, he should absolutely be in the top five and I could be talked Mm -hmm. into it, but I'm just thinking that night, that Ben Johnson night before was unbelievable. Number two, no, no. And, and number two, um, this is where it got impossible for me because you pointed out, I, I have number two, Terry Fox and number one, Paul Henderson. And the only reason that I don't have it flipped the other way is because Paul Henderson's happened in a moment. It was a moment of emotional explosion because he scored with 34 mm-hmm. seconds off. Terry Fox's was a long, not moment. It was an experience. It was a, 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 an, a, a, a whole event more than it was that moment. I don't think there was any moment in the Terry Fox run that you could compare to that moment that Henderson scored. Correct. Not a singular yeah. moment. Well, when, Terry Fox dipped his foot in the ocean on the East coast. Nobody really, nobody knew. cared. Yeah. Nobody cared. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now had Terry Fox finished, I wonder, I've always wondered about this. What do you think mm-hmm. if Terry Fox had finished that, would we think of Terry Fox today the same way we think of him now? I think we would have because of how big it became when he got through Ontario and we were following him then. And then he would have been on the rubber chicken dinner circuit for years and years. And we would flock to see him and hear his story and so on. I get what you're saying, but I think he's still right up there if he if he completed it as well. I, and, and I think you're probably right. But the thing that always makes me wonder that is celebrities who die young, they carry a... a, a what's the right word? Not a veneer, um, a mm-hmm. sense of almost sainthood. Yeah. Um, you know, and pick your person who they, 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 we never got to see them grow old. They never got to ruin their reputation. Not that he would have, but 
there was something so um, it, it caught in a moment, so perfect about the fact that it, this young guy went the way he did. It was a, it was a, it was an, an anti Hollywood ending kind of, but we all um, become better as we get older and our careers go on. Right. Like it happens, right. Alive or dead. Well, what, I mean, look, I, I don't pretend for a second. I don't believe that Terry Fox would have screwed up his legacy in any way, shape or form. But I also know that nobody is perfect. Right. And you know, whether it was today as a, 60 year old making a, you know, like an ill-advised social media tweet or taking a political stance or, uh, you know, that half the population likes and half the population now doesn't like you anymore or whatever. It's, it's, in, it's inevitable that the, that if you live, something is going to get in the way of that perfect sterling untouched reputation as a young man who's no longer with us. I agree. And even Paul Henderson using his example, he was on Team Canada, so he was great. However, his best games were like games seven and eight of those of that series is when he was had his best games of his career, probably. And there are people even on that team who take shots at Paul Henderson and say, Well, you know what, he's been dining out on this for too long and all yeah. the rest. I mean it, right. you you cannot live on and on and on and not have somebody begin to criticize you. It's inevitable that Terry Fox would have had criticism as it is now that will never happen. And again, I don't want to suggest that he would have become Steve Fonio. I don't believe that. Right. If you know who Steve Fonio is, yeah. I don't believe that. Um, but you're right. Here's another thing that when we, when we look at our top five and so on, here's my thoughts on it. The two best, Sports calls in Canadian history, in my opinion, are the Henderson goal, 1,000%, and touch them all, Joe. And I think that helped just cement them in the top five, maybe. And now now that we've talked about it, I've had 10 minutes to think about it, right? Because we've heard those two calls more than any other in any sport. And I think, I you're, think you're probably right. Helped. I think you're probably right. And I do think not, not to make it sound, this, this may sound self-serving. It's really not meant that way, but I do think that some of these moments, whether it's these ones or other ones can be impacted, can become better or worse by the media call that goes along with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some that were probably way better than we're giving credit for. And had they been accompanied by a more memorable thing, I mean, like I think Kurt Gibson uh, his home run off Dennis Eckersley. Yeah. Um, it, it was an amazing moment anyway. But the fact yeah. that you had Vin Scully on the call, I think makes it even more legendary. Um, the Miracle on Ice. It's not Canadian. Miracle on Ice. Right. Same, right. Right. And then, but you have another great moment, which I think we both gave honorable mention to the four bounces and in. Yeah. There was no commentary. It, the, the announcers just lost it. <laughs> But, but what would, I mean, look, if we didn't have Al Michaels at the Miracle on Ice saying, do you believe in miracles? Mm -hmm. That thing would have never even been called the Miracle on Ice. That's where it got its name from. Who knows what it would be known as the Olympic upset or, you know what? I mean, who knows the, the, you can think of whatever. So there are some that, yes, you're right. That, that have been benefited, that benefited from something special like that. Anyway, I, um, I'd love to hear from people what they think, whether, 
whether they believe Paul Henderson should be. And, and I, you know, I put Henderson there largely, Steve, because even though I was very young when it happened, mm-hmm. listening to people of that era, you do understand what this series meant beyond a sports moment. There was so much more to it. The one I remember most was when they headed over there and Phil Esposito gave us all heck, right? Before they got on the plane to leave to go, he, he gave us all what for on the, on TV. Yeah. yeah. And that helped build it. There are, there are lots more. Just got one from Mike who says Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer. Uh, in the 2010 Olympic ice dancing champions would not have been on my list, but I absolutely can see why it would be on some other people's list well, for sure. I don't, I don't discount that one. Here was um, my honorable mention it, to speak to that was, and this is personal honorable mention, 1986. I took my grandma to see Torval and Dean do the huh. Bolero at Maple Leaf Gardens, like the ice dancing pair. They yep, were yep. unbelievable. They, they made Bert Tessa, right? They made them. Moyer and Tessa Virtue. It is, uh, it's, it's a great discussion to have. If you want to, if you want to have a conversation that goes on for the evening and we don't have time for the whole evening, but, uh, we could have a uh, top five Canadian sports moments of all time. Uh, would love to hear yours. Radley at 900chml.com. Uh, Steve Foxcroft, always appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. Good to catch up. Talk to you soon. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.